0: So, um, with that in mind, for the last time, uh, at least in this series, take your Bible and turn to the book of Job. I was telling Lisa last night this is this is actually um, kind of sad for me. Um, you know I suppose that <clears throat> that people that are historians and biographers um, they really get to know the person as they study and as they prepare, and I feel like uh, Job has become a friend uh, along the way this last year. Um, I, I can hear him. I know this book and I've read this book so many times. I, I hear him speaking and I I can... things jump out at me sometimes and um, and so it's, it is kind of sad to uh, come to this point in our study. But uh, it's appropriate. It's been a fun journey and I trust it's been helpful to you. And um, so we're going to we're going to conclude with what I'm going to call a jet tour through Job. Um, Borrowing from the most famous John MacArthur sermon uh, in terms of tape sales was his uh, tape he did years and years ago called A Jet Tour Through Revelation. So I'm borrowing that from John MacArthur. Um, You'll see I renamed the title. Um, There's a sense in which when you sit down to study a book of Scripture... You want to study enough to have an outline in view. In fact, Terry and I were talking about this the other day. You know, it's, it's the challenge of, you know, you've got to see the whole forest before you can individually inspect the trees, right? But it's not until you individually inspect the trees that you know what kind of forest you're looking at. So there's this back and forth that we, we know that tension well. And um, one of the things that I often reflect on at the end of a study is um, the title you know, because you go into a study with trying to pick a title that you think captures the essence of the book, and um, reflecting back on on Job now that I've gone through it, I'm going to call it the sight of suffering because I think I think if there's one big picture, it's that suffering suffering brings a level of spiritual sight that you cannot get in any other context. Uh, and, and, and if if we've been accurate in understanding the book, that really the, the the key verse there at the end of Job's repentance is when he says to God, um, you know, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. If that's what this is all about, then this is a book about how suffering brings sight. Uh, one of the commentators put it like that, and, and uh, so that that's my new title here. Okay, what we want to do in uh, this time that we have today is is just what you know the subtitle says that I want to take you through a jet tour through job um, if i 've done my job over the last year, then you shouldn 't be saying oh wow that's you know that 's new i mean this this is all review or mostly review, um, but these are the things that if you walk away and you forget everything else, these are the things I feel like uh, at least for me were the most important truths to to digest and, and to walk away with. Um. <laughs> boop, boop. I've got a clicker, guys, it doesn't work. Can you replace these batteries for me, real quick? Actually, can you just advance the slide? Okay, and then maybe you can do those. Thank you. The first thing I want you to remember coming away from Job is where Uz is. Now, there was a man named Job and he was from the land of Uz. Okay, now while they're fixing that, I'm going to do the old-fashioned way of doing this here. You got your uh, Red Sea, right? And um, you can see that this whole area right here, this whole orange area off to the right of what would be Palestine and and what we would think of as the Israel area, that whole land, kind of the northern Arabia, uh, modern-day Saudi Arabia, uh, Iran, that whole area is is called Uz, okay? And uh, that's where Job was from. Can you guys click the slide again, please? Slide, please. You guys remember that? Just go ahead and run through that until the click, 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 and two more. Thank you. Okay. The second thing I want you to remember as we jet tour through Job is the structure. The reason most people struggle with the book of Job is they get lost with, with the structure of the book. We, we like the first couple chapters. We understand Satan and God, and they have this little thing going on. We understand the end where, where God comes in, and he reveals himself to Job, and Job repents. But the reason most people misunderstand the whole point of the book is they get lost in the middle. Okay? So I want you to remember this. That introduction is so important because it it tells us what the book is really about. The book of Job is about a challenge that Satan gives God. Okay, That's what the whole book is about. That's where all of this starts. And and yes, there are other themes. Yes, there are other purposes. But it all starts one day when the sons of God, uh, the angels go to present themselves before God in some sort of celestial uh, uh, video a scene that we get to see. Thank you, Wes. And um, and in the process, God calls Satan's attention to Job, and He says, "Have you considered my servant Job? Have you have you looked at this guy? Have you seen my servant Job?" And we talked about the significance of that title last time. And, and you know the story. Um, God says, "There's no one. There's no one like him on the earth." He's blameless. He's righteous. There's no one like this guy. And, and Satan says, oh yeah, well I know why that is. Because you have blessed his life. You, you, have, you have made him more prosperous than any other man alive in that time in history. But if you remove that prosperity, if you remove that hedge that, that Satan recognized was around Job, a hedge of blessing really, um, Satan says to God, he'll curse you to your face. And that sets up this whole drama. That sets up this whole story. And if we don't understand that, we miss the whole point. So that's the prologue, an introduction to Job. And uh, and you know the story, um, that uh, Satan is given permission to um, wreak havoc in Job's life. He um, kills his servants. He kills his animals. He burns his crops in his field. Uh, he loses all ten of his children all in one day. And Job still holds fast his godliness in that he still trusts God and blesses God. It's, it's worth reading one more time because these are profound verses. In chapter 1, verse 21, he says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's absolutely amazing. Um, Same thing happens. Satan comes back in and says, Ha! Ha! Yeah, that's okay, but he's still got his health. God says, Okay, take his health away. See what he does. And you'll recall at the end of that, though his wife is um, despairing and discouraged and wants Job to just end it, uh, he says to her, Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And the narrator tells us in all this that Job did not sin with his lips. And we see this man enduring the the severity of uh, his trial there. That's all prologue. Um, Then what happens is we see that in the the suffering, even Job initially responds well, his suffering doesn't go away. The health, he continues to go downhill and in sort of the chronic, ongoing nature, Job gets up in chapter 3 and curses the day of his birth. Um, he can't take it anymore. He wants to die. He wants God to just kill him and end it. That leads to the debate section, which we'll talk about in just a minute. The debate section is where the three friends come in and. The first friend Eliphaz speaks, Job responds, then Bildad speaks, and Job responds, then Zophar speaks, and Job responds, and that debate goes through three times and that 's where this is where people tend to get lost right here is um, in that dialogue N- nothing like nothing like Hebrew poetry to just kind of throw you off you know there 's a chapter on wisdom, then Job has his final response, his final plea. Then Elihu, who is the John the Baptist of the book, comes in to prepare the way for the Lord to speak, which he does, starting in chapter 38. And then the epilogue section. Okay? But if you keep that structure in mind, then then you won't get lost in the forest uh, there. Uh, This is that debate section pattern that I showed you, or told you about just a minute ago. A little graphic here. You remember this from last time. That's going to repeat itself three times. And that can give you that kind of gives you a compass to get through the hardest part of the book there with the dialogue. The other thing you need to remember is that um, there, are some, there are some themes going on here in the book of Job. Just just for fun, who remembers the themes? Let's let's see if uh, let's see how you guys have done this past year. What are the three themes in Job? Rich. Yeah. Well, don't read it. Use, use, your, use your brain yeah worship. worship okay explain that explain that what, first theme is worship okay what, what's what's this all about what's worship all about why is Job yeah why does Job worship and that gets at the heart of Satan's challenge right is he worshiping for the benefits or is he worshiping because God is worthy to be worshiped thank you sir okay what's the second theme I know you can read, but put it together for me. You're, okay, here, here, here's it This week, you talk to an old friend and you say, Hey, we, we just finished a Sunday School series on Job. They say, Oh, yeah, I've read parts of that book before. What's it about? Okay, what are you going to tell them? You're going to tell them the three themes. Okay, you got number one. What's number two? Suffering. suffering. Yes, yeah, so that's that's the one that everybody, everybody knows. Not everybody. But most people know Job is about suffering but not in the way that people typically think. Okay? What is the book of Job trying to answer in terms of suffering? How God suffering. Okay, how God reveals himself in suffering. And, and, and are we to walk away like the friends did, saying that you know, people suffer because they have sin in their life, and when they do what's right, God blesses them? Is that, is that the trick? No, no, no thank you. Okay, that's, that, that's a big contrast in the book. That is not how God operates. Okay, um, what's the third theme? God himself. It is God himself. What's the third theme? Yeah, the justice of God, okay? And um, you remember that Job uh, argued that God was being unjust. And, and part of what the book is designed to do is to show us that because God is God... Because He is who He is, uh, there is no injustice in Him. There is no unrighteousness in Him. And the way I like to illustrate that is with this. And uh, you guys have seen this so many times, you're sick of it. But um, I like to think of it as three uh, circles that that, uh, overlap with each other. Each of the three themes revolves around the three main characters in the book. And if you can remember that, that will help you to navigate through it in the future. The issue of worship, the, the person with the faulty view of worship is Satan. And as you guys rightly said, that the book of Job is designed to show us that God, people don't worship God because of the benefits he gives, which is what Satan said. We worship God because he is worthy alone of our worship. That's what we see in Job 1 and 2. Uh, Job says, I'm going to worship God whether he gives or whether he takes away, because he is worthy of that worship. The second theme that we see is this issue of suffering. And the characters involved there are the, the three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Um, they have a wrong view of suffering because they bought into the vending, vending machine uh, theology, retributive theology. You do right, God blesses. You do wrong, God punishes. Obviously, there is suffering in Job's life, so there must be personal sin that God is punishing. Okay? And the book of Job is designed to correct that false view of suffering. And the final circle, the theme, involves the issue of justice, that... Revolves around the person of Job himself, who in the, in the throes of his suffering, in, in the, in the chronic nature, the downward spiral of his depression and his physical ailments, he accuses God of getting it wrong. He, he calls God unjust for bringing this supposedly unjust suffering into his life. Now, the reason we say that... you call those concentric circles when they overlap like that? Is that what you call them? Okay. Now, right in the middle is this man. Job, I, I don't want you to forget this, okay? Job was a real man, okay? He was a real man just like you and me. He, he was a real person, not, not some character of fiction. He was a real man, and he really did go through this. There was a real. See, that, that's why we can get you know in all these theological debates. We're just trying to correct our theology. You know, this is a real man living through this lesson in theology. Job lived through the whole issue with Satan and correcting his problem with worship. Job lived through the wrong view of suffering and all the all the things the friends were telling him that were wrong. And Job himself, because of the temptation that the physical suffering brought in his life, fell into a self righteousness which accused God so that he could be justified. Okay. But as uh, Bill or one of you said a minute ago, the common theme in all three of these themes in Job is what? What's the common thing? What, what pulls them all together? They're all about God. Am I going to have to do this a whole nother year? Do you, guys, do you guys get this? This book is about God. It's about the character of God. Why do we worship God? You think that's kind of a big deal? Do you know how many people out here are watching some TBN show this morning and they think that the reason that they're supposed to worship God, the reason that they're going to do what's right is because God's going to bless them with health and wealth and prosperity? That's wrong. That's blasphemous. That's a false gospel. This is a big deal. And, you know, TBN is the 21st century version, but there was an ancient day version as well. That's not why we worship. We worship God whether He gives, whether He takes away, whether we agree with what He's doing, whether we don't agree with what He's doing, because He's God and He infinitely knows better and He is ultimately worthy of our worship. Is God a vending machine? Do you just put in the dollar bill and you get out what you want? Is that how God operates, the simple cause and effect Relationship, He's the genie in a lamp. If you just rub it the right way, He'll bring you the, the blessings that you want. No, remember we, we, we spent all a whole bunch of time there. God is gracious. He is merciful. He's wise. And you know what the good news is? He doesn't give us what we really deserve because He's gracious and merciful. And on the flip side of that, suffering is not a mark of divine displeasure all the time. Sometimes suffering is God's wise and genius design to do good spiritual things in you and in me that could not be done through any other context. And And when we come out the other side, we look back and we say, I see it now. Have you been there? Where you see God working you through suffering, and you say, Wow, I see what he was doing, and what he was doing was good, and that's infinitely better than the vending machine God. That's not God. Our God is wise, and he loves us. And as we saw in Job's life, uh, getting in God's kitchen and accusing him of wrongdoing is usually an act that cost you your life in Scripture. People that contend with God die. And yet God was kind and gracious to Job to show him that though he couldn't understand his suffering, though he had unanswered questions that God in His grace decided not to answer, that he was still right. We read it this morning. God is righteous in all His ways. He is kind in all his deeds. Or Psalm 119 puts it like this. The Lord is good and he does good. Okay. So this is a book about the character of God and it strikes at the heart of three very, very important issues. In fact, I would suggest to you that at some time in a person's life, every person that ever exists wrestles with those three themes. That's why this is such a powerful book. It's, it speaks so practically to people's situations. Now, uh, I, did, I don't think I put this in your... Did I put this in your notes, this part? Oh, yeah, I did. Okay. Because, um, I, again, I, I, this is the takeaway, all right? This is the Cliffs... I gave you the Cliffs notes right here, okay? Um, Satan is the character in the book who has the faulty view of worship. Satan's charge is that people only worship God when God provides them with blessings and prosperity. This charge accuses God of needing to, in essence, buy worshipers. The first guy I heard who put it like that was Steve Lawson in a message he did at the Shepherds Conference years ago on Job. God is in the business of buying worshipers, according to Satan, since he's not intrinsically worthy of their worship otherwise. The message of Job is that God is worthy of worship simply because he alone is God. On the prosperity and suffering, Job's three friends... Uh, have the faulty view of prosperity and suffering because they thought that when people do what is right, God blesses them, and when they do what is wrong, He brings suffering to punish them. Now, interestingly enough, before I move on to that, the the subtle danger in that is why are we going to turn to God in our day of affliction? Why? Remember what the three friends told Job? Turn to God. Go back to Him. Confess your sin. And we say, well, that's not such a bad thing. But what was their motive? Right, so that he get the benefits back. And that sounds dangerously like who? That's exactly, it's Satan's message. You know, you've got to be so careful. There's a wrong way to turn to God in the day of your suffering. There's a wrong motive. Um, we see that there. The problem is that it accuses God of simply giving people what they deserve. And you say, well, what's so wrong with that? Think about that. What if God really gave us what we deserve? We wouldn't be here. Thank you. We wouldn't. There's this, there's this amazing disposition that, heart, that God has that goes like this. Grace! Mercy, compassion, giving people what they don't deserve, giving people a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance, a fifth chance. God God is, as Peter says, God is slow because he desires for all men to be saved. Paul tells us in Romans 2 that God is holding back His wrath. He's holding back His judgment that we really do deserve because He is compassionate and patient and He wants people to come to Christ. That, that's, who, that, do you guys see, that's our God. Our God is not a vending machine. Our God is not a justice dispenser. Our God is a loving and compassionate and gracious and kind and merciful Heavenly Father who knows how to give good gifts to His children. And do you see how when, we, when people turn into TBN this morning and they buy into this, that is blasphemous to the God of the universe? You know, I kind of think of Job as the Galatians of the Old Testament because it's about dealing with this false gospel. The message of Job is that God is gracious and merciful, though He may choose to bless or bring suffering. These are not always connected to one's behavior. And you know what? We should say, "Praise God for that." And then finally, justice. Job's the, the one with the issue of justice. He believes God ultimately is being unjust because of the severity of his suffering. The charge accuses God of being unrighteous and unjust. And of course, the message of Job is that God is righteous and just. He does whatever He pleases, and His ways are always right. And I would add a footnote on that, even though we can't see it. This isn't saying that you're, you're always going to be graced with this, with this um, ability to understand what God is doing. In fact, that, that's a part of what Job is designed to help us to see. God does not owe us an answer. He does not owe us an explanation. Um, He wants us to see Him more clearly and to see who He is. But God does not always answer our questions. Okay, Let's move on here. There are three dimensions of suffering. This goes back to the first couple chapters of the book. Three dimensions that this book brings, and it's very important that you see this. There is a human dimension. What happens? The Sabaeans and the Chaldeans come in, and they kill the servants. They burn the crops. They, They carry off and kill the animals. What's that? That's a human level of suffering. Someone up in Dallas pulls out a gun and, and shoots the guy in the car next to them. Okay? So, someone, um, through their own negligence, uh, gets drunk, jumps in a car, drives, and kills somebody. Okay, that's a human level of suffering. Suffering happens because of people and events in the world. People are responsible for what they do. And every day people suffer as a direct consequence of choices that people make. Okay, can you see that? And we see that in the first couple of chapters of Job. The Sabaeans and the Chaldeans come in and they really are part of the issue in why Job suffers. But the second thing we see in Job is that there's also an angelic dimension. Why did the Chaldeans and Sabaeans come in? Because Satan went to God, didn't he? And God gave Satan permission to bring suffering into Job's life. Suffering happens because of angelic activity. This is is the most mysterious part of suffering. The reality is the Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about this. But, But here's what you and I need to understand. This whole book, the, the 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 mess of suffering that Job went through, was primarily not about him. You remember this? That's not where it didn't start with God. Looked down on Job and said, "Hmm, I need to work on him." It was about God and Satan, and, and that's just that's just totally changes... Does that change how you think about suffering? There may be things going on in your life or in your friend's life, people in your family's life, and it has nothing to do with them. It, it's about some cosmic something that we don't know. I'm, I see I'm running out of words. I can't even describe it. There's some cosmic realm here, this angelic realm that, that God is working in. He he is thwarting Satan. He, is, he loves to show that Satan is wrong and he's blasphemous and his ideas are, are lies, And whether that's for the angelic host, I don't know. But there's an angelic dimension to suffering. And this whole book is primarily about God thwarting Satan. But even in the midst of that, you know what else is true? There's always a divine dimension. And this is interesting. Not one person, okay? This is an underlining, starring, highlighting, circling type of thing. There's not one person in this whole book that looks back to the events of Job's life and says, the Sabaeans did it. The Chaldeans did it. God never pulls back the curtain and says, see, it was Satan. Every single character in the book says what? It's God. How did we get to where we are today? God is the last person we think about. In fact, People, well-meaning Christians, get up and say, God was not in that hurricane. He was not in that storm. He was not in that disaster. He was not in that cancer. And I would suggest to you, I don't think we want to live in a world where God is not in control of his creation. Do we? We may struggle with, well, I don't understand how a good God can take a bad thing and make it good. That's okay. We're not supposed to understand that all the way. But let's not get to some unbiblical place where we're saying God is not sovereign and Lord and providential over all of his creation. And, and Job gives us sight and clarity that, that God, God is God is the agent over all of this. Now, that leads us to what we're going to call a comprehensive understanding of suffering. Um, and this, gets, this goes beyond Job, but, but it was necessary because of Job. You remember this? Proverbs tells us that people suffer because of personal sin. We use Genesis as an example to show us that sometimes we suffer because of the sin of other people. Romans 8 tells us that sometimes we suffer just because we live in a fallen world. Job and the Gospels show us that some suffering happens because of satanic and demonic activity. And finally, we see that suffering is sometimes the direct result of divine judgment. But see, even over all of these... All of these different kinds of suffering okay we 've got all these things here right but but what 's over all of this all of these different kinds of suffering what 's over all that? yeah, a sovereign God and, and he 's taking all of this and he's he 's using it he, he, this is this is the amazing the amazing perspective of Scripture that God, God can take all of these things, He can redeem them and bring good in them and through them. And for our, and for our purpose, Job wants us to walk away with, with, this, with this thought, not all suffering is a result of personal sin or divine discipline. Um, there are other reasons, there are other things going on in order to understand Suffering. OK All right, next thing: the uses of suffering and again, these should be coming out your ears by now, OK? But I want you to walk away. think about what we've learned through Job about God's use of suffering. OK? God uses suffering. God is sovereign over suffering. What is he doing? What is he doing in those things? Well, they're on your outline there. The first use is an instructional use. Suffering is going to teach and instruct me. Suffering is a schoolmaster. It's a classroom where God teaches us and instructs us things that we can't get when life is normal. The second thing is that there is a revelatory use. Suffering reveals my heart. Now, do you see that in Job We'll talk about this more in a minute, but Job is the most righteous man according to the text that's ever lived in this historical context, okay? And yet, what comes out of this guy's heart? Let's let's just round table this for a minute. What comes out of his heart? Accusing God. Accusing God. He doesn't blame God. He doesn't blame God. Well, at the beginning of the book, you're right, Penny. Yeah, at the beginning of the book, it says it doesn't do that. Now, by the end of the book, he is accusing God. Yeah. Okay, so accusing God, blaming God. What else do we see? Self-righteousness. What else? Questioning. Questioning. What else? Not Not waiting on God. What else? Anger. What else? He's putting himself first. What else? Yeah, you can't say it, can you? Yeah, yeah. Will you condemn me that you might be justified? Yeah. Yeah. Which is what's that? Pride. Pride. Anger. Sarcasm. Bitterness. Resentment. Remember the beginning of the book? Severe depression. Suicidal thoughts. Look at the gamut of, of emotion and responses that, that come out of his heart. Well, I thought this guy was a righteous man. Well, God used the circumstances to do what? Remember what Wayne Mack, my professor, used to say? Remember, You guys should know this. He says, our hearts are like sponges. You don't know what's inside of them until they get squeezed. And God takes suffering. He takes hard circumstances and he squeezes the sponge of our heart to reveal things there that need to be addressed. You say, well, that's not, that's not very good. I don't want to see the ugliness in my heart. But see, God is up to something in that. He's not revealing those things so we can, he can say, shame on you. He's bringing those out so he can say, hey, here's an area of your life that needs transformation. Here's an area of your life that needs the gospel. So it's revelatory. Suffering reveals my heart. Um, the afflictions that reveal the nest of vipers. Right, Greg? Number two or number three, the optometric use. Suffering causes me to spiritually see more clearly. Can, can you, just with me, reflect on Job's perspective at the end of this book? After he has that theophany, after he sees God and he learns, he sees things so much clearly than he did beforehand. He understands who God is. He understands his suffering better. Fourth use, a sanctification of use. Suffering conforms me to Christ. We talked about that. That's what God is up to. There's an authenticating use. Um, uh, actually, Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 1. Suffering reveals the authenticity of my faith. We said along the way that an that untested faith is an unreliable faith. Until your faith is tested, you don't want to be too confident about it. That's what Peter's saying. It's a good thing for your faith to be tested because that shows that it's real. This is probably my my favorite one along the way, the inquisitional use. Suffering causes me to ask questions that I ordinarily would not ask. One of God's uh, wise intentions in suffering is to cause me and to cause you to ask questions that you would never ask. If you didn't have that suffering. And those questions are good. Those, those questions lead you to the Lord if you let them. It, it it's like that, you know, the, um, I don't know if this ever will work because I don't, maybe some of you have been in the situation, you know, they talk about on the airplane, you know, in case of a, you know, emergency, there's an air, there's a lighting system that's going to come. It's going to lead you to the exit. Okay. When we ask questions, those questions will lead us to the Lord if we let them do that. And then finally, a doxological use. Suffering provides a context to glorify God in extraordinary ways. Let me ask you a question. Do you think Job had a testimony? Do you, do you think... Can you see the, the headline in, in, in the, um, the Uz Gazette the next day? Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, just <laughs> popped into my head. Um, because everybody knew Job was a righteous man beforehand. Everybody knew he he was prosperous, he had more money, he had money coming out of his ears, he had retirement, he had blessed with children. He okay. But but can you imagine the headline Most Righteous Man lives in ash heap outside of city walls? Friends abandon him, family abandons him, children dead. And then to come out of that with a sight of God to share with all of those family and friends that had abandoned him. I think that's in part why the narrator tells us at the end all his friends and family come back and it's nice that they're giving him things, but I'm like, I want to hear what he says. Because see, suffering gave him a platform to speak in a realm and in a way that he did not have before. There was an opportunity for him to glorify God and to show who God is and His graciousness and His kindness and His mercy that he did not have when all his life was prosperity. Let me ask you a question. Do you want comfort and ease or do you want a platform for the glory of God that will draw people's attention? Which leads us to another thing that we need to talk about. This is this is a little bit new. We've talked about this, but I, I hope you get this Theology is everything. Say it with me. Theology is everything. We're doing theology right now. You're going to do theology this afternoon. You're going to do theology tonight when you talk to the wife, when you talk to the husband. You're going to do theology when you're, when you're um, cleaning the house. You're going to do theology this week when you go to work. You're going to do theology when you get on the phone and talk to a family. We do theology all the time. And guess what? Our theology is instrumental in how we minister to other people. Our theology colors, taints, determines, leads to everything that we do in life. And I hope that you can see that how we minister to others is is in part determined by our theology. Bad theology equals bad ministry to other people in suffering. Bad theology, wrong theology, means I misinterpret my circumstances. Did Job misinterpret his circumstances? Oh, Yeah. Right, This was God's rescue plan in his life. Remember? This is God's rescue plan to rescue him from his own sinful self-righteousness and pride. And Job misinterpreted that and said, God is out to get me. God is unjust. Why? Because theology is everything. Our theology is instrumental in how we minister to those in suffering. We need to recognize the extent of the potential for both good and bad that we are given when we minister to suffering people. Okay. Remember chapter 6, verse 14. Remember what Job says to his friends? For the despairing man there should be kindness from his friend, lest he forsake the fear of the Almighty. Whoa. They almost pushed him off the cliff of faith, didn't they? Because of their carelessness and bad theology. God will hold us responsible for how we minister to others in suffering. Didn't we see that? God says to Eliphaz, my wrath is kindled against you and your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right. You say, but, yeah, but their hearts were in the right place, right? They traveled all the way across their country to go minister. They sat with him in the ash heap. They were there. I'm sure they brought him lunch and dinner and they, you know, made phone calls and they did all this stuff. But you know what? God says, that's great, but that's not what really matters. What matters is what they did in representing God was wrong. You know, it's funny. Suffering both reveals your real theology, and if you will let God, it conforms and shapes and helps you to get more accurate in your theology. And we see that, right? Suffering brought out the real theology of every character in the book. And because God is kind and gracious, it also led those people to a better theology. The fact that we are not in the shoes of the one suffering should lead to gracious and careful words. Isn't that true? You know, I know some of you are walking through people, or I'm sorry, some of you are walking with people down a very long road of suffering right now. And one of the, one of the cautions that this book brings is to say, you know what? The longer you walk down that road, the harder it's going to be for you to keep a right perspective on this deal. And you remember what Job says in chapter 16, verse 4? And I can't remember, it was one of the friends that he responds to, and he basically says, Keith's paraphrase." that's easy for you to say since you aren't in my shoes. We need to be very, very, very careful to make sure that grace and care guide our words, especially when walking down the long road of suffering with a friend or family member. Okay. And chances are, God is doing something in us through that just as much as He wants to do something in the person with the suffering. Think about Job's wife and the friends. Last thing, it was the ongoing chronic nature of Job's condition which revealed sin in both Job and his friends. Okay. One of the messages that I'm not going to get to do in this series is called the chronic nature of suffering. Um, we'll have to save that for another day. But that's a warning. Okay? Ongoing pro- chronic suffering tends to bring out the worst in our hearts. Okay? Now, seen redemptively, that can be a good thing, but we need, we need to have a caution mark there. Next, remember this? Remember contending with the Creator? This part is not in your notes but i put the picture in there remember this remember the pattern that we saw in job how his faith in god moved very quickly to faith in self okay he he started right here and very quickly he ended up here to here to here to here and this is the result okay these are the emotional markers, if you want to call them that that either this is going on or this is going on that that was for for me this is one of the most profound things for me personally that I got out of job was seeing the pattern seeing seeing this downward spiral uh, of moving away from God or moving toward God okay so Keep that in mind. That's in your, that's in your notes there. Let's talk about this. The nature of godly believers. According to the God inspired text, Job is one of the most righteous men that has ever walked the planet. Isn't that amazing? We get to look over his shoulder. That's pretty, that's pretty amazing. Yet he experienced overwhelming depression, suicidal thoughts, bitterness, sarcasm, and anger. He ultimately accused God of wrongdoing and contended with him. We see Job's trust vacillating between the Lord and himself, between acknowledging his need for God and defending his own righteousness. Why am I telling you all this? This is a terribly honest book. And it may be that part of the reason that so many people misunderstand it is it is maybe too honest a little bit. You know, I don't know about you, but... I don't read a bunch of spiritual superheroes in here that have red capes and blue suits and they jump over buildings in a single bound. The Bible reveals that some of the most godly believers are also the most human. And they suffer. And they sin. And they struggle. They're, they question. The, the most, guys, the most righteous man that ever walked the planet sticks his finger in God's face and says, You're wrong and I'm right. We need we need to really, really revamp our view of what a godly person looks like. Because I think, here's what I think we all do. I think we all tend to do this. A godly person is someone who's like this. They never struggle. They don't sin a whole lot, at least big sins. Um, they don't question God. They always have the right answer. And you know what? That's not biblical. That's spiritual fantasy land. This is a real godly man, and yet he struggled with major suffering and major sin that we would probably be embarrassed to admit to somebody if it were us. There's an honesty about this book to me that is refreshing. And if I'm being honest with you, I can relate to Job a lot in his struggles. Said it before, a, a righteous man, a godly man, is not one that never struggles. It's not one that never sins. It's not one that never questions God. A godly man is someone who, when he is confronted about his sin by God, he humbles himself and repents. Okay? This is a godly this is what a godly man really looks like. And I hope that that encourages us to both have a better picture. Um, and to not always be striving after something that's fictitious. Does that make sense? You know, I remember Josh McDowell years and years ago, back in the 70s, um, in some of his books, talking about, you know, one of the, in his apologetics books, that what, one of the things that shows you that the Bible's probably real is that there's stuff in there that's pretty embarrassing. It's pretty humbling. That, that there, There's some really ugly stuff. I mean, you know, God's, God's preeminent apostle abandons him on the night of his betrayal. Oh yeah, that's a good one. That the, the king, after his own heart, commits adultery and then kills her husband. And I remember Josh McDowell saying, you know, if I were God, I would never put that stuff in my book. Right? But, but we don't we don't serve a God that exists in fantasy land. We serve a real God who is really a part of this world, and he's really involved in the lives of broken, hurting, pathetic people just like me and just like you. yeah. Probably. Yeah, and I, that's a wonderful bunny trail. I wish we had time to, to run down it a little bit. Um, let's do this. Uh, we need to think about our own transparency in light of this book. And, and then maybe another caution would be, what's our heart's response going to be when we hear of a godly man or a godly woman who's really struggling? Are we going to be judgmental and critical and hold them up to that fictitious standard of what a godly man is? Are we going to say, you know what? Godly people struggle because God's still at work, isn't he? Um, One of the things that helps, and we'll move on, um, read some Christian biographies if you've never done that. A good Christian biography will show you both how God in his kindness uses men and women to do amazing things for his work, but how each of those men and women are human strugglers just like you and me. There's no red cape and there's no blue suit to go with it. Let's summarize this. Job's calamity was the God-ordained means to thwart Satan and magnify his own name by showing Satan's blasphemous charge to be completely wrong. That's what the book is about. It's about thwarting Satan, which is why, I I, I kid you not, when Job says, I, I repent in dust and ashes, I, I've heard of you, but now I see you, and he humbles himself before God, I guarantee you the heavenly host went nuts in excitement. As Satan walks away with his tail between his legs, defeated and thwarted and embarrassed and shown to be the father of lies that he is. Second, Job's calamity was not God's punishment for some specific sin in his life. Rather, it was designed by God to reveal and then rescue Job from a much more dangerous condition in his heart, his unseen pride. The reality is the most dangerous things that God wants to rescue us from are usually the things that nobody else sees. The friends thought it was some external sin that Job wasn't being open about. But the reality was Job's suffering was not punitive in the sense that God was punishing him. It was restorative. It was, it was designed to reveal and then rescue. It was, a, it was a rescue operation. To rescue Job from something that nobody saw until the suffering. And that was his self-righteousness and his pride. And finally, the events in Job's life were planned by God in order to reveal more of himself in addressing the three areas of his character which needed clarification. His worth, his justice, and his nature and intent in suffering. Now, wouldn't you like to interview Job? Wouldn't you love to interview Job and say, Job, what did you get after all this? Hand him the microphone, right? You know the Bible actually does that. Take your Bible and turn to James chapter 5. Tucked away in this little general epistle is a passing comment about our friend Job of I think great and profound significance. And I think, based on how the New Testament uses this verse, that this is what Job would tell us were we to stick a microphone in his nose and say, what do you think about all this, Mr. Job? Let's pick it up in James chapter 5, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until he gets the early and late rains. You too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And do not complain, brethren, against one another, that you yourselves may not be judged. For behold, the judge is standing at the uh, standing right at the door. Verse 10, As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So, so James is saying, look, I'm calling you to be patient and wait for the coming of the Lord, and as an example of what it means to endure suffering—that's where Job's or, or James readers are—and uh, as an example of someone who endured and was patient, I want you guys to think of the prophets. Okay, think back to the prophets: Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, guys like that. But that's not the one he picks. Look at this, verse 11, uh, or I'm sorry, verse 10. Uh, uh, Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Verse 11, Behold, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance, literally the steadfastness of Job. Okay, there he is. Here is the New Testament confirming not just that Job was a real man, but confirming the historicity of his life because it reflects his endurance, which is the book, right? But watch this, this is the best part, watch this. And you have seen the outcome or the end, the goal of the Lord's dealings with him. What's the goal? What's the outcome? What was this all about, Job? that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Of everything we talked about, what was the takeaway for Job? He walked away saying, "My God is so compassionate." I got in his face and he was patient with me. He gave and he took away and he gave again. I didn't deserve any of that. He's compassionate. And not only is he compassionate, he's merciful. He withheld his judgment, withheld his punishment, withheld his discipline. I had no right to any of this. And and Job walks away saying, You know what I got out of this? You know, Channel 4 News, Job, we want to know what... He says, you know what I learned? I serve a compassionate God, a merciful God, a God that is so amazing, I can barely even begin to describe it. And you know, if that's true of Job, that that tells us one of the most important things that God is up to in suffering, and that is to show us more of who He is. His compassion... His mercy and His grace. You know, it's funny. If you reread the whole book of Job, you see mercy and compassion on every page. Uh, guys, that's the God whom we serve. That's what God is up to in suffering. And might God grant us the grace in our day of suffering or when we walk down the road with somebody that we would walk away or our friend would walk away saying, we serve a compassionate and merciful God. He is good and all, he does good. His ways are righteous and his ways are merciful. Let's pray. Father, this has been a, uh, an amazing journey. Thank you for Job. Uh, thank you for giving us the grace of allowing us to look over his shoulder that, that you would take things that were very personal and no doubt uh, embarrassing and, and challenging to him and uh, you would make him a testimony that would serve people 4,000 years later. Father, I look forward to the day when, when I can shake Mr. Job's hand and when we all will have eyes to see his compassion and mercy not simply refined through suffering, but face to face. Father, we think of our brothers that have gone home to be with you this last week, that they are experiencing your compassion and mercy and kindness in a profound way today. And uh, Father, we long for you to refine us and to shape us and to use the suffering in our lives to help us to see more Your compassion and Your mercy. How ironic that a man who underwent suffering that probably none of us will ever experience walks away saying, You're the most compassionate and merciful God I know. Father, that's the genius and wisdom and profoundness of who You are and what You can do in suffering. Father might you might you give us eyes to see as you did with Job we pray in Jesus' name